0: Wearing a mask is actually a symbol of respect. It's a day-to-day situation right now,
1: because
2: we don't know. Rolling back, cracking down, COVID numbers
1: climbing. The numbers continue to trend strongly in the wrong direction.
0: Every hospital is looking at their electives as a way to reduce and shift their census.
1: Community spread, hitting the front line. Our it's
3: um, we We're not going to be able to take care of
1: you. But if you think you're going to silence me with rubber bullets
3: or attempt to intimidate me through statements to the press you've thought wrong civil rights and
2: police response get a congressional hearing south florida congressman elsie hastings is here
1: to weigh in and so is one of the candidates running to be miami-dade's strong mayor
3: i'm not saying that it takes a woman to do the job i'm just saying the men haven't done it news
2: of the week this week in south florida
1: Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam.
2: I'm Glenna Milberg. Great to be together on this 4th of July weekend. Unlike any other, we've had COVID-19 cancellations and curfews and pushback on what many see as limiting freedoms. There were protests against the closed beaches in Fort Lauderdale. People set off their own fireworks all over South Florida, replacing the public displays that cities had canceled.
1: The sharp rise in new COVID-19 cases certainly is troubling, but the most important metric here is the number of people admitted to our hospitals, and this graph shows a steady rise in admissions to Miami-Dade hospitals.
2: This week, the head of Miami-Dade's public hospital sounded the alarm at the current he says capacity will max out in less than a month. Jackson Health System CEO Carlos Magoya is here live with us via Skype. Good morning, Carlos. Great to have you with us today.
1: Carlos.
0: Good great. morning, Glenn and Michael. Thank great. you very much for having me.
1: Great to see you. Give us the census right now at Jackson. You have three facilities, but you know, how many COVID patients do you have in the ICU? Uh, at uh, your facilities, at your hospitals?
0: So we have a total of 318 patients at this point. About 85 of those are in intensive care today. If you were to look at the gap right now, we're actually having a little bit of a spread between the number of uh, patients in the med surge versus an, an ICU, um, I, that, which is normal because they usually catch up. Um, we're finding the people in the ICU right now to be younger, sicker, AND, FRANKLY, COMING FROM LOWER-INCOME NEIGHBORHOODS.
2: YOU KNOW, that THOSE ARE INTERESTING TRENDS THAT YOU'RE TALKING ABOUT. REAL QUICKLY, BEFORE WE CONTINUE, THE STATE NUMBERS FOR TODAY JUST CAME OUT. STATE uh, HAS ADDED 9,999 COVID CASES. MIAMI-DADE 2282 JUST TODAY. BROWARD. six hundred and sixty four just today Carlos you know that the numbers we listen to every day really don't mean much without the context to them and and what's interesting in what you were just talking about is the changing face of those numbers because I remember just a couple of months ago hospitals were saying THE the LARGEST PERCENTAGE OF PEOPLE ADMITTED TO THE HOSPITALS AND ICU WERE FROM NURSING HOMES AND LONG-TERM CARE. AND SO WHAT SOUNDS VERY TROUBLING IS THAT THIS COMMUNITY SPREAD IS A MUCH BROADER uh, DEMOGRAPHIC NOW.
0: GLENN, it REALLY, IT'S HAPPENED IN THE LAST 30 DAYS. IT REALLY STARTED uh, uh, RIGHT AFTER MEMORIAL DAY AS IT STARTED COMING. AND IT COMES FROM a, a, a TWO PARTS. IN THE WESTERN PART, THREE PARTS, ACTUALLY. IN THE WESTERN PART OF HOMESTEAD, RIGHT IN THE CENTRAL PART OF THE CITY OF MIAMI, Uh, And then in the northwest part of the county as well.
1: Yeah. Carlos, um, I I don't want to assume anything, but uh, you and other medical experts, doctors, epidemiologists have said a lot of these people, number one, don't wear masks. They don't practice social distancing. Teams have been out to try to teach them how to do that. But in fact, you are living, Jackson and other hospitals are living with the consequences of people who didn't obey those regulations.
0: THAT'S EXACTLY RIGHT. UNFORTUNATELY, THERE'S TOO MANY PEOPLE OUT THERE THAT ARE NOT WEARING THEIR MASK AND NOT DOING SOCIAL DISTANCING. THAT'S WHY REALLY I APPLAUD THE MAYOR'S uh, CURFEW THAT HE DID uh, STARTING AT 10 O'CLOCK IN THE EVENINGS. Uh, TOO MANY PEOPLE ARE OUT IN THE STREETS uh, PARTYING uh, WITH PRIVATE PARTIES OR WHEREVER THEY'RE AT AND uh, MAKING JOKES OUT OF THIS. THIS IS A VERY, VERY SERIOUS SITUATION. AND uh, SOME OF THESE YOUNG PEOPLE ARE NOT REALLY TAKING CARE OF WHAT THEY NEED TO BE DOING, NOT JUST FOR THEMSELVES. BUT FOR THE other, uh, the REST OF THE FAMILY THAT THEY uh, GET IN TOUCH WITH.
2: WE WERE TALKING EARLIER THIS WEEK, THAT COMMUNITY SPREAD IN ANOTHER TROUBLING TREND HAS HIT HEALTHCARE WORKERS, THE PEOPLE WHO ARE WORKING 12, 16, 24 HOURS A DAY DEALING WITH COVID-19 PATIENTS. AND AT, and at JACKSON, I BELIEVE A FEW DAYS AGO, YOU HAD GIVEN US THE FIGURE 11 PERCENT OF THE STAFFING HAD had become COVID positive. So, so talk, if you would, about what kind of, aside from bed space, I and mean, you need staff at the hospitals to really deal with this.
0: Well, up, up through May, we were seeing a 7% uh, of our employees that were being tested. In June, that number went between 11 and 12%. I, and, and the difference from before May was that we were not really seeing uh, our employees Uh, You know, getting infected uh, outside, they were inside. Now in June, they're bringing it from outside. So I think what's happened to some degree, even our own healthcare people have gotten a little relaxed about it. And we are now, one of the big focuses that we have is making sure that our employees uh, stay within the the normal social distancing and and masking. And we've seen a better control of that ever since we put a a heightened awareness around it.
1: Carlos, we know that uh, the people who work at your excellent hospital, I've been a patient there. Tremendous treatment, uh, quality of care. The psychological toll on these men and women who are treating the COVID-19 patients and seeing them die and seeing them suffer, uh, I mean, the toll it takes on your staff has got to be tremendous. How do you help them cope with it?
0: So we've been at this now, Michael, for over 100 days. I think it's around and 107 days since we saw the first patient. Uh, AS YOU CAN IMAGINE, THE STRESS IS tremendous, uh, AND FRANKLY, uh, THE AWARENESS, NO ONE IN HEALTH CARE, ESPECIALLY AT JACKSON, CARES TO SEE A PATIENT uh, DIE. Uh, it's, IT'S A HORRIBLE SITUATION. SO IT'S OBVIOUSLY uh, THE CONCERN THAT WE HAVE WITH EVERYONE. But the, THE BIGGEST THING THAT WE DO IS TO TRY TO KEEP THEM uh, AWARE OF WHAT'S GOING ON, COMMUNICATE THE BIG PICTURE. IF YOU'RE IN THE EMERGENCY ROOM, IN, the, in the INTENSIVE CARE, WHEREVER YOU ARE, You only see a patient-by-patient basis, and you say, when is this ending, when is going on, what's happening around, and you're speculating. So what we're trying to do as much as we can is having town hall Zoom calls. We're having all kinds of different uh, emails. We're trying to communicate with them as much as we can to really give them up to speed. And then in addition to that, we also also have been working on how to be able to shift uh, people around and make sure that we maintain the ratios that we have, Uh, and we've improved the ratios, obviously. Uh, a typical uh, a patient in a, in a surgery um, floor will see a ratio of six patients to one nurse. For, uh, for COVID we do a four patients to one nurse and in the ICU we're doing two to one as we normally do.
2: So when you say you had sounded the alarm that we are literally weeks away at this current trend from running out of bed space, how, how does that staffing concept deal with? Is there some, then the trend that we're that we're in right now the staffing ratios that you just talked mm-hmm. about, uh, are you concerned that there might be bed space, but just not enough staff to really care for patients?
0: Well, right now, uh, th- this is the reason why we, we started slowing down on, a, on all the elective surgeries and focus more on urgent and emergent surgeries. You know, our, our typical census that we run CAN be 1,350 up to 1,400 beds. We have 318 today of COVID patients. So we're not running out of beds if we are having less patients of other non-COVID situations, which is the reason why we've slowed down some of those elective surgeries. We feel comfortable with that. But like I said before, uh, you know, we had a period of time there in 14 days that we see the number double. It went from 150 to 300. Now, as of the last uh, Wednesday or so, the number has, uh, you know, creeped up slightly uh, to 318. That doesn't mean it's over. We still got a long way to go. So uh, it gives us a little bit of time here to make sure that we shift and we'd be able to reduce some of those other patients to make room for the COVID patients. Uh, and we feel comfortable that we got enough beds right now and staffing to be able to deal with that. But if that trend were to continue for a longer period of time, as I mentioned before, it's not sustainable. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the, the we not only sounded the alarm, but the mayor created uh, this, uh, um, this ability to be able to cut back on 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 the hours and everything else that we're doing around the community, which is extremely, extremely important to be able to cut back on this pandemic.
1: All right, stay where you are there. We're talking with Carlos Magoya, CEO at Jackson Memorial. We have more questions for him about COVID-19 and the hospital, stay with us. Welcome back on This Week in South Florida. On this Sunday, we are speaking with Carlos Magoya, CEO at Jackson Memorial. Carlos, tell us, do you have enough PPE for your hospital staff? Because early on in this pandemic, there were many hospitals and and long-term care facilities that didn't have the masks, the gloves, the gowns, uh, ventilators, everything they needed. How are you doing?
0: So luckily enough, uh, we were early on in ordering a lot of PPE, and when that shortage happened around mid-March to April, uh, we had enough at, the, at that period of time. I will tell you that right now the the issue is not PPE. There's plenty of supplies on a national level, even with a, a, you know, an increasing number of uh, um, uh, patients that you're seeing for COVID. The challenge right now is making sure that we continue to have enough beds and staffing Uh, to cover those kinds of patients. That's the only reason why we reduce the uh, the surgeries. If it's a matter of PPE, it's not the challenge. It's really the beds and the staffing right now.
1: Yeah, what if I may, what about remdesivir, this uh, pharmaceutical, this drug which has been proven to be helpful in many cases? On Thursday, Vice President Pence was here, said he thought he brought 34,000 treatments of remdesivir. Did you get some?
0: Well, the good news is there's 34,000 the 34,000 for the entire country, Michael. Oh, that's not very much. I
1: thought you said and, for Florida.
0: Uh yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'm sorry. You're right. The 34,000 was for Florida. But still, we have we saw some of it, but, but the state right now is actually still controlling it. We're seeing very few patients, 3 to 5 patients typically in the ICU is the only time we we give the renisivir. So that part is being is being done at this point in time, but it's still very very tight. Uh I'm not sure we're going to get to see a whole lot of it anytime soon. Uh, but there are positive outcomes in the ICU, not only for remdesivir, but also for different kinds of stories that are being um, implemented and having better outcomes. We're a lot better today in, Ju- in July than we were back in March and April in dealing with uh, this disease. So we're seeing better outcomes. As, as you see, uh, the, the positive outcomes are, are improving. Every month it gets better. So uh, even though we see sicker, sicker patients, our people are a lot smarter as to how they deal with that.
2: Carlos, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about suspending once again the non-elective, uh, non-emergency, elective, non-emergency kinds of surgeries. Uh, you know, for people who are not really into the hospital industry, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be a serious surgery. It just means that it's something that can wait that is now suspended to save the bed space. I know earlier in the week you had spoken on the phone with hospital CEOs from all over South Florida. Not every hospital has done that. And, and we know just from our reporting that Jackson Health Systems financial viability relies very much on those kinds of surgeries. Talk, if you will, what your concerns are and forecasts and projections, how that kind of policy is going to affect the viability uh, going forward of the health system.
0: Well, it, it, that's not a pleasant subject, <laughs> or a very Sorry. positive one for, from that standpoint. But uh, important. Thank you very much, but you're absolutely right. Uh, right now, we're still doing uh, some of these they are called elective surgeries. You know, brain tumors, uh, back surgeries, uh, open heart are sometimes considered elective surgeries. Uh, but they are, when they become urgent or emergent, when you have seen the delay, we've continued to do that. So we're not going to be able to 100% shut down Uh, Whole surgery, especially when it comes from trauma or through the emergency room, but we are still seeing some significant losses. I mean, you might remember we have a half penny sales tax, and in the month of June we collected the money from April. That was a negative $16 million from what we normally collect every month. Uh, So that by itself, on the sales tax revenue, was a negative $16 million. Uh, We're seeing substantial losses. We have seen some help from the federal government. We have missed also some of the federal government help. For technical reasons, uh, and uh, we're hoping we're going to get some more of it. So, right now, we're going through the challenge. We don't have a problem from an operational standpoint. We have plenty of cash and we have lines of credits that we have not yet used in case we need to. Uh, so, right now, uh, I think you'll be surprised. And thank you, Michael, for calling me a healthcare professional since you know I was a banker all my life. Uh, I'm, I'm putting the financial side secondarily and really focus more on the community and the needs that we have from a community at the, on the front. Yeah. And, and uh, we have sufficient cash to be able to do that. Yeah.
1: Well, I knew you when you were a banker and I've known you for years now as a, a terrific hospital administrator. Let me just ask you kind of personally, Carlos, if you are ever out in the community and you are, and you see some people walking down the street or wherever you may be who aren't wearing masks, do you ever have the kind of temptation to walk over and say, hey, put a mask on? You know, help out the, the world, help out your community.
0: Well, we had one of our employees, uh, father that passed away and I was at their funeral Tuesday night, uh, this past Tuesday night. And believe it or not, in the parking lot, there was a group having a tailgate a drinking party, oh. 40 people without mask on. Uh, and I walked past them with my mask on and I said, guys, can you please put your mask on? And they looked at me like if I had three eyes. Oh. And that shows you the kind of, there's this wreck. Now, this person that I'm talking about is the next Miami Dade County police officer. So there were several police officers inside. I said, guys, go out there and tell these people to wear their masks. Uh, so, and that's the kind of thing we need to do to make sure that everybody does it. I will tell you that I'm seeing as we w- go through the restaurants in Miami, I think for the most part, the, the businesses themselves and the people coming to the businesses are trying to be compliant. It's just a lot of those people that are coming out just refuse to do it because it's been now, you know. Over 100 days, as I previously mentioned, people are getting tired. It's not a joke. It's a very serious time, and we need to make sure we wear those masks and that we're socially distant.
2: Well, and now it's an order that comes with civil fines attached, possibly. Carlos, um, there are critics and probably the people you were just talking about, among them, who are saying, you know, we report on these numbers, but um, in context, there is a, a fatality rate that is actually on the decline uh, this week, there have been more hospital discharges, at least yesterday, than there were admissions. Is there, in, in your world, in your perspective, do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? How are we reaching the peak and maybe are on the downside?
0: Elena, we're not on the downside yet. Um, I, you know, we're running testing in the mid-20%, 22 24 25%. On positivity rates. That's the real number I look at. I don't look because we're seeing, we're doing more tests than we ever did. So just the number by itself doesn't mean much. So it's really the positivity rate that we're focusing on. That's still a very alarming number. The reason why you're seeing those discharges is because all hospitals are focusing on three things uh, making sure that we admit only the s- sick people that need to be admitted, that we discharge them when we have to do- discharge them to make sure we have a- available beds for the next group, and that we keep our uh, em- employees. Uh, infection-free to MAKE sure we take care of those people. So those are the kind of works we're doing. And then from a community perspective, what the mayor's doing with the curfew, what they're doing on enforcement and education, all that needs to come together. The numbers are still high. We're uh, we, I, I, if it continues at this pa- uh, pace, we will probably see the peak around the end of July, first week of August. But I think as we continue to be as aggressive as we have been from a community perspective, that peak will be a lot lower than, than the, it would have been otherwise.
1: Yeah. Carlos Magoya, great to speak with you. Thank you for the time. Our hats off to you and to your wonderful, heroic staff uh, at the Jackson Health System. Yeah,
2: thanks so much. And up next, South Florida's congressional delegation is on the front lines of bringing in COVID-related relief.
1: Congressman Elsie Hastings is going to join us live. That is next. Elsie Hastings began his career as a young lawyer fighting for civil rights. And guess what? He's still doing it for the last 27 years as a member of Congress.
2: And today that fight has new momentum. And it is where we begin with Congressman Elsie Hastings repping District 20, comprising parts of Broward and Palm Beach counties, live with us on Skype from Boynton Beach. Good morning, Congressman. Congressman,
1: great to see you. How are you? I'm holding on. Good to see you,
4: Glenna and uh, Michael.
2: Actually, and I, was at,
4: I was at the doctor's last week, and I was told that my tumor uh, uh, was uh, quiet, so I said that allows me to make noise. Actually, Amen. I was uh,
2: i was just going to say so many people know that you have been sick and really battling this, and it's great to see you, and, and you really are looking very healthy from this perspective.
4: Totally there are three things that I want to uh, jump on uh, that we aren't going to spend time on. But we need to be here in South Florida and in this nation, particularly South Florida, preparing for schools and uh, hurricanes and election protection. I just wanted to put those uh, three things out there. I know you have other items on the agenda, but boy, are those some important interactions that are coming up real soon
2: absolutely and you know what let's delve into some of those yeah. and b- before we do thank you for field producing our program that's <laughs> that's always really handy but let's um let's talk a little bit about the police reform because that you know congress passed this police reform bill named for george floyd last week right. there was there was such hope i think in the in the public perspective of democrats and republicans really coming together and Really, doing things like ending qualified immunity and the chokeholds and the no-knock warrants, and then uh, it seems to be stalled now over a couple of things. Please do, if you would, weigh in on on what you foresee there.
4: Well, Glenna, um, as you well know, legislative undertakings are uh, glacial. It takes uh, time. Um, we were very, very proud of uh, the George Floyd uh, Justice Act. It included uh, some very sensible things. Uh, And it did not uh, necessarily contemplate everything as Michael uh, said in the opening. I've been here in South Florida for 57 years and I've seen lots and lots of um, uh, so-called police reforms. Let's begin with the fact that something called defunding um, uh, the police um, is an uh, overreaction hyperbolic word. Um, We need the police, Uh, uh, as people used to say, and it's true, some of my best friends, uh, police officers, particularly three police chiefs here in South Florida, and uh, I'm not against the police, and I don't believe most people are, Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is what they're talking about or what I'm talking about when I talk about reform is I'm talking about accountability. And it would seem to me that there should be independent review and that there should be things that the police officers should not have to do. Um, Mental health issues have devolved to the point of it's a police issue. Uh, uh, The same holds um, uh, uh, with uh, uh, matters pertaining uh, uh, to juveniles. A lot of times it shouldn't have to uh, require uh, the police. Some domestic um, uh, situations Uh, should not have to require the police. And counselors uh, should travel along with uh, police officers in a cluster uh, to be able to deal with many of the uh, issues uh, that we see. But you know something, Um, nothing's going to happen until after the election legislatively. Uh, But many of the cities are going to take actions and counties are going to take actions. And there are 18,000 police departments all uh, that are in need of some changes, and everybody knows that. It's uh, It shouldn't be pitting the police um, uh, versus
1: um, uh, uh, the communities. Yeah, Congressman, <clears throat> um, you are so well aware because of your long career, your fight for civil rights. Uh, There have been so many deaths that we have seen over the years of black men uh, killed by police officers in sometimes very questionable circumstances. Uh, And you think back in recent years to Ferguson, Missouri, you think about Tamir Rice, you think about Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and now George Floyd and this tremendous outpouring of white people, black people, young, old, Hispanic. Uh, you know, gay, straight in the streets, we seem to be at some kind of a tipping point where society as a whole is saying we will not take this anymore. Do you see that? I do, Michael, and uh, well
4: well put. Uh, The fact of the matter is, having participated in demonstrations, having uh, uh, done all the things that demonstrators do during the civil rights movement, Um, And since that time, we've not seen a period like this and something is different. Um, It's an inflection point. It's a congruence of um, the confluence of uh, events coming together at the same time. And when you look at a place like Beaver, Pennsylvania, where there are only 6% blacks and you see white people leading the march Mm -hmm. uh, in a conservative area and you see that all over uh, the nation. I'm here to tell you that I genuinely believe uh, that uh, Gen Xers and uh, uh, the millennials are going to show up at the polls in a way that they have never done. And I believe that that's going to have um, uh, an uh, impact on the outcome of the election.
2: So can can we just delve into that? Because that's a really interesting prediction Seeing Mm -hmm. as so much of Congress have people like, I mean, respectfully, like you, have been there for a generation. What what do you foresee happening there for both parties? I
4: see us being emptied out slowly and some uh, uh, fast. Uh, I don't believe uh, that there's going to be that kind of uh, significant change in the Congress this year. I believe the president has lost suburbia um, and particularly suburban white women. Uh, with that in mind, and you add to that uh, the Gen Xers uh, who are normally not expected to vote, as well as the Generation Zs, certainly not expected to vote. But look back a little bit to Parkland and that election after the Parkland mm-hmm. shooting, and you will see the impact of those youngsters is still being felt um, and reverberating uh, throughout uh, the body politic. So I certainly see. Um, a new kind of event. The question was always in the civil rights movement at the early stages whether white people would stick. Well, they did more than stick. You had uh, people that died uh, without getting um, uh, into all the names. Now what you have is these youngsters um, have been friends in school. Um, uh, They have dated. Um, uh, They have exchanged um, uh, 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 family uh, uh, greetings with each other and it's a more solid movement. It may look diffuse right now, but when you see Black Lives Matter painted in uh, uh, the streets here as well as elsewhere, I think a change is coming and I think it's coming much faster than we think. I think this election is going to be a change election.
2: On that well, note can yep. you we want to sit r- hear sit right more there. about
1: that but we have to take a break yes
2: we'll, we'll see you in two minutes stay tuned <laughs> sorry
1: <coughs> welcome back we are in the midst of a conversation with an old friend congressman Elsie hastings who is the representative for the 20th congressional district congressman you said at the outset you want to talk about um, among other things about election protection. As you well know, President Trump for weeks has been on a tear about mail-in voting. He says it's fraudulent, it's rigged, it can be changed, ballots can be stolen. Now, there's not much evidence of that at all. What do you say?
4: Great projectionist, And I'm of a mind to believe that they're doing everything to suppress and oppress the vote and uh, steal uh, the upcoming election. So no better place to start than um, uh, with um, uh, your opponents. With that in mind, um, uh, he argues about mail-in ballots. Uh, The Republicans beat us Democrats in the last election by 54,000 mail-in ballots. I don't know of any evidence. He commissioned uh, a gentleman from out in Kansas to form a group to go around the country and look for fraud. We didn't have any fraud. The biggest thing we had best pay attention to is cyber attacks. And uh, they are real, uh, they were here before. And it's not just Russia. Uh, we will likely um, uh, see others. Uh, but you know, uh, uh, for the president to spend all of uh, the time that he does dividing uh, the country. It is not right uh, for all of the people in this country uh, to have a president that wakes up in the morning uh, with evil on his mind. That doesn't uh, uh, bode ill uh, for this upcoming election. And my view is he needs to pay more attention to policy um, uh, uh, than he does running around talking about mail-in ballots. We're going to have mail-in ballots in Florida, and we're going to have it elsewhere around the nation and I'm encouraging all of my constituents uh, to get mail in. People shouldn't have to choose uh, between catching a major disease um, and voting or when opportunity exists for them to vote um, uh, without having uh, to show up. And there are places and there are people that are going to have to show up at the polls.
2: Congressman, last week on this program, we had the supervisors of elections for both Broward and Miami-Dade, Pete Antonacci, supervisor in Broward, Christina White, supervisor in Miami-Dade. We talked all about what they are doing to make sure that vote by mail and absentee is safe and uh, and that kind of information is gonna be really critical. But as to cyber security, VOTE vote BY MAIL IS HAS NOTHING REALLY TO DO UNTIL IT'S COUNTED WITH uh, WITH ANY KIND OF DO YOU MEAN CYBERSECURITY AT THE MACHINES IN THE POLLING PLACES OR DO YOU MEAN CYBERSECURITY um, DISINFORMATION CAMPAIGNS VIA SOCIAL MEDIA BECAUSE THAT'S WHAT WE SAW RUSSIAN RELATED IN 2016. DISINFORMATION.
4: AND ALSO IF YOU RECALL IN FLORIDA WE HAD TWO COUNTIES Um, uh, uh, that had their supervisors of elections office all hacked. Um, These people get more sophisticated, but you hit it on the head. Um, It will uh, uh, likely uh, redound um, uh, to them coming in uh, the way they do in social media and spreading lies. That's what it boils down to. And some people, the only place they get their information from is social media, and therefore it's easy for them uh, to not understand. But, you know, I can't leave this program without um, having um, a, a, a clear understanding of this divisiveness um, and, uh, that the president is perpetuating uh, and that is being followed uh, uh, by uh, uh, Governor uh, DeSantis. It's no excuse for Governor DeSantis uh, to not have had an all-points uh, uh, alert uh, for uh, folk who a need to get unemployment insurance. It's no excuse for Governor DeSantis and President Trump to not have a mask uh, uh, requirement in this state,
2: Congressman. We, in in lieu of having, in episode. lieu of having someone here to, from to, sort of answer and respond to what you're saying, I, I will yeah. say that we've done a lot of reporting on that, and and the governor was really clear that he's leaving it to the locals, and locally we do have that. So I just he's wanted to already. put it out there in fairness.
4: Of the state of Florida, and people are suffering and people are dying. We are setting records every day. And those records are going to show a lag indicator at some point. He could spend his time, along with uh, Trump, trying to get us an epidemiological strategy. We could be about the business of really trying to do the things that are necessary. Now, we'll get a virus somewhere down the line. uh, But in the meantime, um, uh, we are about to experience a humanitarian disaster. And it was avoidable. And I don't care who says it and I don't care how many times DeSantis says we should not wear a mask, I wear a mask um, uh, when I'm outdoors and I do that for the protection of others as well as for myself. It's absolutely crazy not to uh, wear a mask. That's the least thing in our toolbox that we have at this point and we cannot, without all of the things that you all know the names of by now, without that, uh, with the mask being the lead, we aren't going to be able to curtail this yeah. virus.
1: Congressman, you know, before we run out of time, really want you to weigh in on a running mate for Joe Biden. He says he's going to choose a woman, and there's a lot of uh, movement, a lot of pressure to select a black woman, perhaps Kamala Harris, perhaps Susan Rice, perhaps the mayor of Atlanta. Uh, do you have a... Valerie, uh, uh, Valerie Demings is also... And Val the- Demings of Orlando, yeah. Yes. Do you you have
4: a preference? uh, I um, have expressed myself uh, early on in the uh, campaign. uh, But my preference is Joe Biden's preference. He uh, has been vice president. He has been in government uh, for a very long time. He knows how our State Department has been hollowed out. He knows um, how um, uh, the attorney general is meddling um, uh, in trials. Uh, He knows that the president is making policy decisions having to do with Russia and not having um, uh, the uh, force protection uh, understood by those that we send into harm's way with the bounties being put on them um, uh, at uh, our American soldiers. And I could go on, but the fact is, he has said, that is, uh, Vice President Biden, that he wants someone that he's sympathetic with. I take the position, Michael, if he's simpatical, I'm simpatical. <laughs> and okay. I will vote for a box before I don't vote for Donald Trump. We,
1: we get it. That we know not, where that you're is not coming from. to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman Hastings, great to see you in good health. Hey. Thanks very much. All and up right.
2: next, thanks, Congressman. Up next, the first in our series of candidate Q and A with one of the leading candidates for Miami-Dade Mayor,
1: Commissioner Daniela Levine Cava, is going to be with us next.
2: Welcome back. Four Miami-Dade commissioners are running to be county mayor in next month's primary. Unlike Broward County, Miami-Dade, ha- Miami-Dade has a strong mayor form of governing.
1: We have invited all of the leading candidates to be a guest on the show to introduce them spells, uh, spell out their ideas, Before Election Day, the primary is August 18th. Daniela Levine-Cava is a lawyer, longtime community activist focused on social services, helping children and families. She's been a county commissioner since 2014, represents South Dade, and she is joining us live this morning from her home in Palmetto Bay. Commissioner, good morning. Hi,
3: Commissioner. Good morning, great to be with you.
1: We are glad you are. So here's the simple question. Why are you the best candidate why should you be the next mayor of Miami-Dade?
3: Well, I'm really the community candidate. I'm the people's mayor. I've served for 40 years in this community, all corners of the community, people who are struggling to uh, get uh, the, the opportunities that so many lack. I've been working on issues of immigration, on um, health care access on uh, economic opportunity, affordable housing. That's my legacy for 40 years, running organizations big and small, and I am ready to get the job done. I am the newest uh, of the candidates. I'm not a lifelong politician. I'm independent. I'm known as fair, uh, good problem solver. I have support across the aisle, and I am ready to serve.
2: That sounds like a great debate opening. Got that all down. Commissioner, um, thanks for the introduction. And this is not a... Partisan race. Miami Dade's mayor, there are no parties. It's a nonpartisan race that everybody in the county votes in. But you are known for people who know you and your work as the sort of progressive candidate, the most progressive of the lot. And you have a, a social service background, nonprofit background. So I wonder if you could talk about that in the context now of COVID 19, not only the services that are going to be needing, the county is going to be needing. BUT THE FINANCIAL EXPENDITURES THAT THE COUNTY IS GOING TO BE MAKING. IN THAT CONTEXT, WHAT DOES YOUR CANDIDACY MEAN?
3: You know, I am social worker in chief. I am a social worker as well as a lawyer. And uh, again, my life has been about service and I find it extremely encouraging in the Black Lives Matter movement as well that people are calling for the kinds of social services that we've been cutting back on. And we know that those are exactly the services that people need today. COVID has just exposed the disparities in our society in a much bigger way, and people's eyes are wide open. And everybody is suffering now. We have such high unemployment. Uh, We have people who are months behind on paying their rent. We have businesses that are in free fall. Everybody is struggling. And this is the time for a person with my compassionate background uh, to, to step up. And it is a nonpartisan race. I'm very proud of the support I have across the aisle. I think that the public is really calling out for the kinds of reforms I've been working a lifetime. to So achieve. The,
2: the, the other half of that question was the financial expenditure that that's gonna require in a county that is after these, the COVID crisis and, and, and taxes and revenues is really gonna be facing a, a very difficult budget
3: yes so we are very fortunate because the federal government congress has uh, appropriated dollars under the cares act and other sources and we are going to maximize the benefit of that we've already used it for some of the crisis some of the food program the testing programs and the like but we're going to be talking Uh, next week, as a matter of fact, this week, about how to spend those dollars to have the maximum benefit to help us weather this economic storm. After that, we have collected the property taxes for the next budget year. So we'll have some time to think through what are the priorities as our economy recovers.
1: Yeah. Uh, Commissioner, a couple of weeks ago with the Miami-Dade County Commission, you tried to get a earned sick leave policy passed and you did not succeed. You've tried some other things and one of the people blocking you Uh, is Commissioner Steve Bovo, who is also a candidate for mayor. is going to be on the program in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I'm not putting words in his mouth, but, you know, he all but called you a bleeding-heart liberal who is more than willing to spend taxpayers' money. So how would you respond to that?
3: The Federal CARES Act money was appropriated. It's coming to our community. Not spending it is is disregarding the needs of our community. I challenge him to go out and talk to people in the community and ask them if they don't want us to use those federal dollars to help them pay the rent, to help keep their businesses going, uh, to, to help people stay employed. I am with the people on this one.
2: As a commissioner, uh, one of, your, well, your district is the Down South uh, Homestead yes. and Palmetto Bay. And and that is, in fact, uh, Carlos Magoya from Jackson Health System earlier in the program, you may or may not have been able to hear, uh, mentioned that is one of the hot spots in the county really yes. dealing with COVID-19 in a, in a horrible yes. way right now. Are you? Do you think that Mayor Carlos Jimenez has done a good job in managing this COVID crisis, managing the county through it?
3: I have been the only commissioner, in fact, the only major candidate, to challenge the mayor and how he's handled this. Too little, too late, in my opinion. Uh, yes, he uh, did a good job of laying out what businesses should do, but he did not couple that with the public health response. We know from CDC and other sources, we must have in place testing contact tracing, and isolation for those who cannot safely isolate at home. We don't have those things. So that's why the virus is spreading. Yes, it's true that maybe some young people got excited and went out partying or whatever, you know. Uh, Yes, it's true that maybe some businesses were not using adequate precautions. But I think by and large, the businesses were following guidelines. The real point is, Yes, we all must mask, and I had to push the mayor on that one too. We all must mask, but apart from that, we do not have the adequate number of tests on a rapid turnaround basis. We do not do contact tracing to make sure that wherever there is an outbreak, we immediately tamp it down, and we do not have safe spaces for people to go when they need to isolate. The mayor
2: said that the county has more than 1,000 contact tracers working, is, is do you have a different number?
3: He has not put those contact tracers to work. I've been pushing on this for several months. The backup at the state of not accepting the, the personnel. Yes, the mayor has assembled personnel, but he has not pushed back on the governor to insist that we do it. Now, finally, we're going to move ahead. They're going to be hiring, but it is not in place now, and it has not been for four months.
1: Yeah, uh, Commissioner Levine Cava, you resigned uh, to run for mayor, but you still have two years left on your current commission seat um, and uh, what this means ostensibly theoretically is that you could get into a runoff and lose in November and then either be reappointed to the seat that will be open or run for that seat is is that your strategy here kind of a not at all strategy?
3: not at all I'm very proud of my six years on the commission I've made it abundantly clear to those who have expressed interest in the seat and who to anyone who asks, my plan is to be mayor of Miami-Dade County. I do not plan to seek appointment or to run again for the balance of the uh, four-year term.
1: And you would be obviously the first female woman mayor in the history of Miami-Dade. Ruth Shack came kind of close many years ago. Uh, why is that important?
3: Well, first let me say Ruth Shack has endorsed me. I'm so proud of that endorsement. Uh, you know. Look, we've had men uh, running the show. We know that women have stepped up in public life, uh, and they make a difference. It, the men have not gotten it right. It's time for a woman.
2: <laughs> and that's not to say that it's because of their gender, but we'll just let. Not that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner, thanks so much. Always value your time. Great to see you. Thanks for being with us.
1: We'll see you on Thank the you. campaign trail.
3: <laughs> yes, sir. Bye-bye.
1: All right. We'll be right back.
2: As always, we thank you so much for being with us this hour. We are online all the time, 24-7 at local10.com.
1: Difficult times, but we are getting through this together, and Local 10 is with you all the way. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved.